We are in this uh, series, as Pastor Marvin mentioned, Learn, Love, Live. And if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open them to Luke chapter 10. We're going to get there in just a few moments. Focusing on some things that are important to us at Mount Hope. Uh, and this morning, want to talk about this idea of love. And uh, as we do, let me, you're turning there, let me start by saying this. We love to measure things in our world. Uh, we love to measure things as a people. Um, we measure everything that can be measured. And measuring's good, and it's helpful. I, I'm a data person. I love data points. I love uh, information and measuring things, uh, and it can be helpful. One of the things I thought about, we love measuring uh, in this part of the country. We measure our snow totals, right? Some of you remember about 10 months ago, we were measuring those snow totals, and we were measuring whether we were going to pass that record of the most accumulated snow on record in a single winter. Let me take the informal poll. How many of you were wanting to break that record last year about this time? A few. How many of you uh, were, were last year saying, forget it, I don't care about the record? Uh, yeah, we, some of you were afraid to raise your hand, didn't weigh in on it. My wife and I, we were in a divided household, Wendy and I. Uh, Wendy wanted to see us break that record. She wanted to see, hey, if I went through this winter, we got to get some credit for it. Lived through the winter of 2015. And, uh, and I was on the other end of the spectrum. After one broken snowblower, a couple of chewed up shovels, buckets and buckets of sand and ice melts, and uh, snow banks that were about 12 feet tall at the end of our driveway. I did not want to see another flake of snow, <laughs> let alone that spring heavy wet snow, which I think is just cruel, right? After you've been shoveling for months, the heaviest, wettest, most difficult snow comes at the end of the season. But those of you that wanted to break that record, your, your wish was answered and and I hope you got your badge or whatever you got to, uh, whatever, whatever that meant to you. I hope that was great for you. Um, it's easy to measure snow totals. It's easy to measure. We have lots of ways to measure things. There are other things in our life that we measure that maybe it's easy to measure. When you're in school, it's easy to measure how well you're doing or how poorly you're doing, right? We have a very, uh, uh, you know, system, organized system to do that. There's A, B, C, D, E, F. You can get a paper back and, you know, did I do well? Did I not do well? Measure yourself against your peers. You can take the SATs. Some of you have uh, sons and daughters, students that are getting ready to take their SATs uh, next week, maybe. And uh, you get measured. You measure against not only your peers immediately, but across the whole country. Uh, you measure yourself. Where do I stand? You get that number back. And they tell you, this is where you stand. Maybe in your workplace, you have ways to measure. You do an annual review, maybe, or a 360 review, and you get the information back, and they say, here's where you stand. You're a three on this, a four on this, a five on this. Or you go to the doctor's office, and they say, well, you know, here's where you stand. Your LDL is here. Your heart rate is here. You know, you can, get a, you can do a little better here. Your weight and your height are here, and here's where you stand. And we like to know where we stand on things. But the truth is, there's a lot of things, and sometimes the most important things in our life, that are just really hard to measure. If you look back on 2015, if you're a parent, how'd you do as a dad? How'd you do as a mom? 
What's the number? What's the grade? How do you get that? Some of the most important places in our life are hard to measure. How'd you do as a son? How'd you do as a daughter? Living in your household, loving and obeying your parents. How'd you do? How'd you do it as a grandmother or a grandfather? You knocking it out of the park? Or do you have some work to do? <laughs> Somebody is. <laughs> Go talk with her. She'll tell you how to get it done. How'd you do? Those most important places in your life sometimes are the hardest to measure. How'd you do as a husband? How'd you do as a wife? Don't grade yourself. Ask your spouse. Some of those places are hard to measure. How'd you do as a follower of Jesus in 2015? As a Christian man, as a Christian woman? Sometimes hard to measure that, isn't it? Maybe it'd be nice to be able to go and maybe you'd, maybe you'd think, come and sit in your, your pastor's office or something and I'd sit down with a notepad and I'd say, well, tell you what, kindness is good this year. We're gonna give you a seven on kindness. Doing okay, that joy is holding steady. You know, you're doing well there. You know, patience, though, we're going to work on that one. That one's down a little. I mean, it'd be great to have some, like, concrete feedback. How am I doing? How am I doing as a Christian? How am I doing following God? But yet, it's hard to find those numbers. And yet, it's important to think about these things. And so this idea of how are we doing following God or how are we doing uh, in our relationship with God, actually, there are some very concrete places in Scripture that God tells us we can measure how we're doing in these things. And I want to look at a couple of those this morning. While it's hard to know these things, it's important to think about these things. And so I want to do that with you this morning. There was a man in Scripture who wanted to know the answer to a similar question of how he was doing. And he came to Jesus with a question. And his answer to that, I think, can be helpful to us in thinking about this. Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 25 uh, just to uh, 28 as we start. The Word of God says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. In this passage, we have an expert in the law, which would be similar to maybe a lawyer today, except not in secular law. He would be an expert in, in all the laws of the land, which would also be the religious laws of the time. And he comes to Jesus and asks the question, how do I inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I know that I'm right with God? How can I know that I am living a life? How can I know that I am pleasing to God? How can I know that I can inherit eternal life? Jesus puts the question back on the expert of the law. And the expert of the law responds, well, he says, by loving God with all that I am, loving my neighbor as Myself And Jesus said, you're right. That's the answer. Go do that. And so that's it. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the answer. But that's maybe not the answer we're looking for when we want to measure things because it begs another question, doesn't it? And that question is, how do I know 
if I am loving God and if I am loving my neighbor. Love is a very ambiguous, obscure, sometimes slippery term. How we measure it. How do we measure how we're doing at that? And you might think, well, there's no way to measure that. But actually, God gives us some very concrete ways in his word to know how we're doing on these two important things of how are we doing at loving God and how are we doing at loving our neighbor? Let's just take the first question first. How are we doing at loving God? For the answer to the, how we measure this question, I want to go to a different pastor's scripture. It's actually that one we read in a responsive reading just a few minutes ago. 1 John chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole section to you right now. We've read that. But let me read verses 7 and 8, and then verses 20 to 21. And you see if you can identify where in this passage God's word tells us how we can know if we are loving God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now jump down to verse 20. It says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Did you catch it? John in this passage is very clear of knowing whether or not we are loving God as we should. It is clear as the snow measured by a New England meteorologist after a storm. If you love God, you will also love one another. If you don't love one another, you don't love God. Well, who is the one another, you might ask? Who's the one another? Well, John's writing this letter to Christians in the early church. He's writing it to people who have decided to follow Jesus in the early church. And he's writing these letters to churches. And in fact, many of the one another words you'll see throughout the New Testament are how Christians are to love one another. And think about this. Why would John have to write such a letter like this? Well, life back in first century Christianity was a little different than it is now. If you became a Christian, you were a part of a pretty small group, likely, in your area. And the people who also responded to follow Jesus were also a part of that small group. Perhaps you knew them before, but maybe you didn't. And likely they came from all different economic aspects of the society and world that you live in, a world that was much more separated on class than our world. And so you have this small group of people that is separated by class, that is separated in so many different ways, and they're brought together, and it would be very easy for them to treat each other the way they would outside of the church and to not love one another. And they're brought together in this, in this group of people, and John says, you cannot treat each other that way. Because if you're going to love God, you must also love one another. 
They may have liked each other or they may not have, but John says you must love one another. John is saying you can't follow Jesus and say that you love God and not show love to these other people who love Jesus. If you do that, you're missing the point entirely and you don't really love God. Because if you did, you wouldn't act this way. So John says, if you want to know if you love God, look at how you love others in the church. If you're growing in your love for others, then you're growing in your love for God. Very specifically, John writes, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. They're intimately connected. So how are you doing at loving other Christians? Specifically, to people who worship beside you each week here at Mount Hope. Yes, there are opportunities to show love to Christians outside of Mount Hope. We live in a world that we've crossed barriers of, with our communication venues. We can cross distances and things in the way the first century church could not. But I still believe that the local church is yours and mine primary opportunity to love one another. Yes, there are opportunities to show love outside of that, but these are the people you know. You know their needs. There are people who may stretch you. There are people who may test you. But God has put you close to them to sharpen you and to sharpen me and to grow with one another. In our modern world of easy transportation, large churches and multiple churches in a town, we may forget about this important aspect of being a part of a church. It was not that way in John's time. If you had a problem with a person in the church, you couldn't just go to First Baptist down the street or the next Assemblies of God church up the road. If you had a problem with someone in the church, you learned one of two things. You either learned to love people or you learned that you really didn't love God. Those are the two things. You either learn that you, you either learn to love people in the church or you learn that you really don't love God. As we worship beside each other, we're called to love each other. That is to protect in, in certain ways, ways that we do that. One way we protect each other's reputation by not gossiping. We protect each other by talking to each other when we have issues with each other, going to each other in Matthew 18's way Matthew lays it out there, by actively being aware and looking for needs to meet, not just saying, God bless you, keep warm, and going about our own business. James speaks to that. If there are people that we come to church on a Sunday morning and we avoid, it could be a red flag that something's wrong in our relationship, not with them, but maybe in our relationship with God. See, here's the point of the passage. If we're having trouble loving people in the church, it's not because we're not trying hard enough. Hear me. If you are having trouble loving someone who's also a Christian, loving someone who also follows Jesus, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. That's not what this passage says. We can often think, well, I just need to be more loving to people. I need to be more empathetic. I need to walk in their shoes a little more. And we can say that, well, for 2016, I want to be more loving to other people in the church and other Christians, so I'm going to try and be more empathetic. I'm going to try and walk in their shoes. I'm going to try, and, and this is going to help me to love them more. That's not what this passage says. John says, if you love God, then you will love people who love God. 
So it follows that if I am not loving people who love God, then I don't love God and I don't understand the love of God. Let me fill in between those verses I read. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. John writes, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John in this passage gives us a very clear way of knowing whether or not we are loving God as we should, and it's to love one another. In, in verse 16, there's two words there, and it says, and we know and rely on the love of God. See, this is why it's not about you trying harder to love people. If I am not loving people, what I really need is to learn to know and rely on God more. Those words, know and rely, in verse 16. Can you put that verse up, John? Just go back to that verse. Those words in verse 16 of John, 1 John chapter 4, know and rely. In the, in the Greek, they're in what's called a perfect tense. They're perfect tense verbs. I don't know that we have that, the, the, the same kind of tense in English, well, the perfect tense verb in Greek means is that it's an action that was completed in the past, but it carries on implications into the present time. It's not just something done and completed in the past. It's something done in the past that informs and affects my life today. So as we are knowing or have known God and are relying on the love of God has for us. So the way that we are able to love one another is by knowing the love of God and relying on his love within us. It's not about you trying harder to love someone. It's about you falling so much in love with God's love for you that I can't help but love the people worshiping beside me. It's about me relying on God's love that I can't help but love you who also loves God. One commentator said Christians should love not because all those they meet are attractive people, but because the love of God has transformed them and made them loving people. They should love now not because of the attractiveness in other people compels their love, but because as Christians... It is their nature to love. We live in a world that loves people based on the attractiveness of people. Sometimes it's the attractiveness of their outer looks. Sometimes it's the attractiveness of something about them. Maybe the money that they have or the place where they live. Sometimes it's the attractiveness of a situation in life. Maybe they were a victim of something. And our heart, we would say, our heart goes out to them. 
And that makes them attractive to us, to love, to show love to them. What John is saying is, there are people that you will worship aside that they're not attractive to love. Don't point fingers. They're not attractive to love. That's not why you love them. You love because God loves you. And you love because God has put it within you to love those within the church. That's why you love. That's why you love. I don't love because I feel like loving someone. I love because I feel the love of God within me and it compels me to love the people around me. So the way that we can know that we love God is by looking at how we are doing at loving other people in God's church. If we're not acting in love towards them, then we need to go back to God. Gaze upon Him. Read His Word. Press into His presence. And don't come out until we have such an understanding of Him that He is love that we cannot help but be loving towards one another. And that's, the, that, that's it. If I'm... So, if I, so how am I doing in loving God? Well, how am I doing in loving the people sitting beside me today? Because if I don't love them, then I can see. John says I can't say that I can love the one that I don't see. It's the words of Jesus. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. The way that you love those around you is how I know that you love me. And it's showing that love. It's action love as well. John points to that. If you were to go back to 1 John chapter 3, he points to that as well, the idea that we are called to help and tangibly love one another through our works. So that's the first question. How do I know that I'm loving God? Well, you can measure that by how you're doing at loving people in God's church. Second question, how do I know how I'm doing in loving our neighbor? How do you know how you're doing in loving your neighbor? Well, actually, let's go back to Luke chapter 10 for that one because Jesus answers that one because the expert in the law had the same question. After Jesus said, you've answered correctly in verse 29, it says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I love that he says, and wanting to justify himself. Like he didn't know what he was getting into here. Never asked a question. They, 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 say, they say if you're a lawyer, you should never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. This lawyer, I think, violated that principle. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, in, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers... They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the Samaritan uh, uh, and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The parable of the Good Samaritan is so famous that I think many people wouldn't even realize that it comes from the Bible. Many people would not realize that the term Good Samaritan goes back to these words of Jesus. And even, even less would realize that this parable was given in response to a very specific question of who is my neighbor. Good Samaritan rolls off our tongues without much thought. Not so in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the term good Samaritan is, is as oxymoronic as jumbo shrimp would be to us. You would not put, at least the Jewish people in that day, would not put the words good and Samaritan next to each other. They were not looked at in that way. In fact, did you notice at the end when Jesus says, which of these was a neighbor? Did you notice the expert in the law can't even say it was the Samaritan? He says, the one who showed mercy. Because this would be difficult for him to say. The challenge of this story is not just to help someone when they are in need, but to help someone who is in need even when he is different than you. The Samaritans were looked down on by the Jews. In fact, they were so looked down upon that even when the quickest route to their destination was through Samaria, they would go out of their way, crossing a river twice to avoid coming into contact with the Samaritans. Samaritans were literally half-breeds. They had intermarried with other non-Jewish peoples in the area. They did not worship at the same place as the Jewish people in the same way. They were different in their ethnicity, different in their religion. They were, in many ways, considered impure and unholy. Contrast this with the two people who crossed the road to avoid helping the man. A priest and a Levite, the most holy of the Jewish people. So this one who is the wrong ethnicity and the wrong religion is the one who helped, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. In addition to that, let us also take note of the act of the Samaritans. It was an act, an action. He didn't just give him words. He didn't just say, keep warm. He didn't just check on him and then leave him there. He did not simply wish him well. He did not simply give him scripture verses. He did not simply try and tell him about God. He tangibly met his needs in that moment. That was what a neighbor was. It is not enough for us to evangelize without meeting tangible needs of people. That's why when we send our missionaries to go to places where there is great physical need, they can't just bring the word of the gospel. They also need to bring the actions of the gospel to help those in need. So they were actions. Jesus praises or makes the, this, this Samaritan the hero of the story because he acted. Finally, let us note that the person in need was in front of the Samaritan. He was close in him in proximity. Yes, there were probably other people who got beat up in other places that day. 
There were probably other people, maybe even in the next town over, who got beat up in other places. But this man was close in proximity to the Samaritan, so he helped, and that's what made him neighborly. In a real sense, my neighbor is anyone in need who I have the opportunity to help. Anyone who is in proximity to me, who is in need, who I have the opportunity to help, to be a neighbor is to help that person. See, the scandalous part of this parable is that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. The scandalous part is it's the wrong type of person to be the hero of this story. And Jesus says, he sets him up as the example and says, go and do likewise. Use that person as your model. So loving my neighbor is tangibly helping someone in need, someone I know of their need and have the ability to help regardless of their culture, religion, or ethnicity. They're just a person who's also a person in need that I have the opportunity to help. So if I'm measuring how I'm doing on loving God, it has a lot to do with how I love those who are sitting beside me in the church. If I'm measuring how I'm doing on loving my neighbor, it has a lot to do with those who come across my path who are in need and I have the opportunity to help regardless of their culture, ethnicity, religion, but I have the opportunity to help them, to bless them, to alleviate their need. It speaks to the culture around us too. There was a, um, in the early days of Christianity, uh, it's no secret that Christians were heavily persecuted when the early church was founded in the Roman Empire. Um, it grew quickly, but it was, Christians were persecuted. Uh, one emperor, uh, an anti-Christian emperor, Julian, said this. He said, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. They provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. There was something remarkable about these early Christians that even the Roman emperor who was anti-Christian couldn't help but notice there was something different about these people. Because they don't just love people who are like them. They love people who are different than them. And this happened in the very early days of the church as well. In, um, in that time, which was the beginning of the church, was near the end of the Roman Empire. Rome was coming to an end because of outside forces that were attacking, but also from inside forces, but also from great sicknesses that were coming upon people in the Roman Empire. There was great pestilence that would come along. Um, and while what would happen is they would actually pile up their dead in the streets and physicians would actually leave and people would leave because they didn't want to be exposed to this and people would, would, would pile up people even before they were dead. They would start piling them up in the street and leave them so that they would not get sick. The bishop Dionysius remarked that the average person pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread of the contagion of fatal disease, but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. In contrast, the Christian community cared for its own sick and Rome's. Heedless of their own physical well-being, they took charge of the sick, attended to their needs in the name of Jesus. Some Christians died themselves, having contracted incurable illnesses from those they ministered to. 
but this ultimately led to the rapid growth of the church as it went from 120 original followers to tens of millions in just a few centuries. There were many things that led to the growth of the early church, but this was certainly one of them, this idea that they were called to love. They were called to love one another, but they also, in the way of Jesus calling the Good Samaritan, they were called to love people in need. And so they loved. They loved those who were in need. And you and I are called to the same kind of love. If we're going to measure how we're loving our neighbor, it's probably going to be measuring how we love that person around us that is the other person that may be difficult to love. But it's a person in need. It's a person we are called to love. As a church, we, of course, want to be a place where people can learn about Jesus and grow in their walk with God. We talked about that last week. That's key. We want to be a place where someone, if they don't know Jesus, they can come in and learn about him from the, from the very beginning of their faith. If they, if they know Jesus, we want them to learn continually and grow in their faith. But we also want to be a place along with that where people love God, love each other, and love people who don't even know God but are in need. Because that is who God is. And that's what will draw people to God. That is who we are supposed to be. God is love. Let's not get that reversed. Love is not God. There are many people who would worship the feeling of love. That's different than worshiping the God who is love. We worship God. There are many aspects of who he is. One of them that scripture tells us is he is love. And when you know God, you will know love. So how are you doing in your love for God? A good measure is looking at how you're doing at loving people to your right and to your left. It's a good measure of knowing how you're doing at loving God. When you come into this church on a Sunday morning, what's the mentality you come in with? Do you come in with, oh, I hope there's something in the message that God has for me? Do you come in with, I hope they sing a song that I like? Do you come in with, I hope nobody's sitting in my seat? Or I hope the air conditioner's not too cold today? Or I hope the heat's not too warm today? Or I hope the lights actually work today? What do you come in with? Or do you come in with, I hope I get an opportunity to serve someone today? and to love someone today. Not just serve in the formal way of ushering and greeting and teaching children's ministry, though we are very grateful for all of you that serve in those ways. But serving as a part of, I am a participant in the church of Jesus Christ here at Mount Hope. And these people that I walk beside in the halls and sit beside in the chairs are who God has called me to love in all those one another verses right now. You may have come from somewhere else. One day you may move to another place and God will call you there right now as a part of this local assembly of believers. God has placed you here to love one another. God has placed me here to love one another. I cannot live out all those one another verses apart from you. And you cannot live them out apart from each other. It's the only way to live them out. And so you come in on a Sunday morning thinking, God, put me in a conversation where I can learn about somebody's need, where I can be a blessing, where I can show your love to them, where I can show your love to them. How are you doing at loving 
your neighbor. A good measure is looking at how you're doing at helping people in the needs around you that are outside the church. I've said this before, but so often loving people often takes a little more than just taking the time to listen. I mean really listen to people. Perhaps it's a casual comment about an ailing parent or a child out of control or a joke about drinking or about his wife or her husband or about a bill that hasn't been paid. It may be just a casual comment or it may be an opportunity to love one another. It may be an opportunity to love your neighbor. And may we be the kind of people that love God by loving one another and that love our neighbor as ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father, what we talk about this morning is not something of little importance. In fact, when we look at your word here in Luke, also in Matthew, in the very words of Jesus, we find out that these are the issues of primary importance. These are the, this is the business of heaven. These are the things you are concerned about. Because when we boil it all down, 66 books in, your, in the Bible, all the words, all the verses, when we boil it all down, Jesus, you have said that the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, we need to get this right. We need to get this right. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us. Even as we're sitting here, that you would identify within us places where we need your Holy Spirit to help us to love you and to love others better. Lord, and so often the reason we get this wrong is because we fail to grasp your love for us. We fail to grasp how deep our sin runs and how far your love extends. We fail to grasp how far, how lost we are apart from you and how great the grace is that you extend to us. So Lord, I pray this morning, first before anything, before anyone who who leaves here endeavoring to love their brother and sister more, before anyone leaves here endeavoring to love their neighbor more, I pray that first and foremost you would give us such a picture of your love that we would be so overwhelmed by it that it would cross every fear and every boundary that we put up that keeps us from loving other people that you would so overwhelm us with a picture of how much you love us. You would so overwhelm us with a picture of your love, your grace, of what it means that you are love, that we could not help but be people who also love. Father, so as we sing and as we worship and as we pray, Would you do that in each of our hearts? Overwhelm us once again with your grace. Remind us that your grace is still amazing. Remind us that your mercy 
is given to us every day and we don't deserve it for a moment. Remind us, Lord, that even though we are lost, that you come searching for us. That even though we walked off, that you are there with open arms to welcome us home. Remind us, God, that you are the God who loves first. And we can only love because you have loved us. So before we try and act, Father, would you once again overwhelm us with your love. And we ask it in the name of your Son. In the name of your Son, who is the ultimate picture of your love to us, atoning for our sins, saving us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? As we close out our service this morning, we're going to sing a song of worship, but perhaps this morning you're feeling a conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're feeling a need to respond, and you want to come and maybe pray and kneel at these altars. Just come before God and maybe ask him for that picture of love. Maybe ask him to overwhelm you with his love. I would invite you to take the time to do that. Please do not leave here trying to accomplish these things in your own strength. That's not the point of this message. That's not the point of what John is saying. What John is saying is that when you are so overwhelmed with God's love, God will give you the strength and the motivation to do it. And so if you lack that, then come. Spend time in God's presence and invite him to overwhelm you once again with his grace and his love. Let's sing together.